Yeah, we just talked about it all. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you missed it, guys. You missed you it, missed guys. It. You missed this week's episode. <laughs> um, Dan, we're back. Not that we forgot to press record. <laughs> and that we we're just going to be bothered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're back uh, to podcasting in real time. Look at us. Mm, real back. podcast time. It's been a long time. It's I been think. a little while. Yeah, been, yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't been absent <laughs> from the RSS feed, but we have been... This mm. act has been absent from our lives. For us, it's been a minute. For and the we, listeners... We've been like, absent from one another's lives. <laughs> yeah, true. For too long. It's true. It's very true. Uh-huh. Very true. Um, and I think we've talked enough JFK. I, <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, there are some things I would still like to add. Maybe we'll bring those up in the next episode. And I was like, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I felt similarly when I was editing those episodes. I was like, yeah. I wonder whether this needs more disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. One thing I, I mean, I think out, it's evident that we don't necessarily know what we're talking about. I think we that was the dic- <laughs> That was the disclaimer I felt that I wanted to make was that like, clearly there are people that know and think they know mm. far more about that yeah. stuff. Yeah, and um, like, no, I figured obviously, it out. Yeah, Jack knows. I've got to figure it Jack, out. Jack knows. I've got to figure it out, which is why this week we're talking about 9-11. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the only thing I wanted yeah. to say about this, and this will be Jack the only is thing... desperate to talk about 9-11 <laughs> at some point. No, we can't do it. We can't ever we can't, do it. We can't. We can't cut it. it. <laughs> the only thing I want to say, and this is uh, the only thing I'll say about JFK, is a bit of a correction. Um, Treasury Department actually oversees Secret Service. I did not know that. Uh-huh. So when we were like, see, that goes still in... Why did he switch these roles? Yeah, yeah, he didn't. That was his role. <laughs> was just, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? That was my interpretation of what was in the book. It wasn't mine. I was just confused because why the hell did David Talbot start calling him C. Douglas Dillon and then start calling him Doug Dillon? I was like, uh-huh. is this a different guy? Uh-huh. Who is this? Whatever. Anyway, that's enough JFK. <laughs> that's enough JFK. We're done. We're done. We solved stop, it. Stop, we stop, figured stop. out who killed him. We agreed, Jack. We were going to put out an episode where we could put marks, <laughs> the word marks. Very explicitly in the title. title. Marks killed JFK. (laughs) That's political terror. That's what that is, Dulles. You should have read your Marks. Um, Dan, uh, how's your trip? Good? It was was fine, yeah. Yeah, great. Same. (laughs) Same. Do you know... know I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's been a fair few weeks. Yeah. Well, we were both away for three weeks or so. It's hard to have that be universally... I don't know, anyway. I don't know. We've both definitely been thrust back into life like work and like oh god i got off the plane and had to start work like what 12 yeah, hours later day, i was just like no yeah Ugh. i've been effectively working for my three-week holiday yeah and uh so it was a bit of a shocker as well yeah it's just the mundanity of everyday life isn't it exactly there you, you go. go there you go um yeah, we should read some situationism with them. That's true. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to ask you, Dan, because um, this kind of blew my mind when I went back home, is that I kind of didn't really care enough to know what's going on with the California governor recall. Do you know what's going on with that? No. Do you know anything about that? I didn't know this because I, I kind of don't governor, care about Gavin Newsom. Gavin sexy, Newsom. sexy Gavin Newsom. <laughs> um, uh, right now, the Republicans are trying to recall Gavin Newsom, which is just classic and kind of hilarious. Um, but the way it works, I didn't know this, is that... If Republicans say they want to, like, recall somebody, and this kind of goes back to our uh, Mike Davis, um, you just raise enough money, send out enough stuff, get people to sign something, and you can do a recall thing. But the way that it works is that when you get a ballot, and I voted, it's like, do you want to recall Gavin Newsom, yes or no? If he does get recalled, who do you want to vote for? And Gavin Newsom can't stand in that election. And it's just a list of, like, 30 people, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians. And there's, like, no set Democratic candidate, but there is kind of a set Republican candidate. So it's just, like, that's insane. And when I went back home, I was like, well, there's no way this would work, right? And it's like, that's how Schwarzenegger got elected. Isn't that insane? I really? I did yeah. not know that. Okay, it's okay, okay. Insanity. Okay, okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. So effectively what happens is they're like, do you want to have another election? Yeah. If yes, or even if no. Yeah, you still have to You still have to have the election. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like you get people that are like, uh, we're going to make Dogecoin, you know, real coin. And that's all their blurb says. And it's just like, oh, my God. And um, do you get to see the results of that election, even if the, the referendum is to keep him? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. I'd like to know. Mm. I'd like to know how many people voted for, like, you know. <laughs> the, the Dogecoin party. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the people who's running is. Um, I would imagine quite a lot of people in California vote for the Dogecoin. Oh, 100%. People are probably voting yeah, for. Uh, by Elon Musk. <laughs> Who's who's the decathlete? Um, killed somebody in a, in a car accident recently. Uh, she transitioned. I forget her name. She's running. So there you go. That probably means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlyn Jenner. She's oh running. okay okay yeah. Okay. yeah. Don't don't forget, Caitlyn Jenner did kill somebody. I did There's not a, know that. Yeah, in Malibu, swimmer, PCH. Well, yeah, <laughs> strangle somebody in the water. Um, <laughs> she yeah. killed anyway. Okay. Anyway, California politics, dude, it's insanity. <laughs> Hopefully, the, presumably the killing wasn't part of like some kind of political. <laughs> no, the other person was also running for governor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it sounds like everybody was running for governor. So, yeah, like, I'm not running for governor. Quite oh, frankly, okay. vote for me if you still have your ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. You know what? You know what is so insane though. Last thing on that is that even though there are like thirty nutballs for every party on the planet. Not one of them's a Marxist. It's so funny. It's like you get people talking about like the craziest stuff, but it's like, whoa, a communist? I don't think so. No way. Not here. Not now. Yeah. <sighs> Brutal. I wonder whether um, a sort of like almost hopeless case Marxist campaign to be governor. They Why have not? happened in the past, haven't they? Sure. People making the effort to be governor of California. Um <laughs> On a Marxist or communist platform. That would blow people's minds if you weren't from California. If you're from Texas, they'd be like, I know it. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, knew yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Mm. I wonder, it would probably, it, it probably represents a quite severe contravention of the idea that, um, Anyway, it might be an impotent act. <laughs> oh, sure. Fully <laughs> impotent. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if yeah, yeah, I'm not going to go there. Never mind. Um, all right. Well, we're back. Here we go. Here we go. Um, almost Dan has been a year. Almost. Since almost, we started the almost. show. I did look at the date that we posted our intro, and it's still like a month away, but almost. Right? Okay. okay. Well, we're we'll going to do something really hi- big. Stop going to the hijack. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have the biggest guest on. We got Obama booked, baby. Um, so, yeah. We'll see you. <laughs> That's my announcement. It's almost been a year since we put up the almost, first episode. Almost. So, like, listen up. We'll let you know when it happens. <laughs> yeah. So you can, like, pour one out for us or something. We'll we'll buy a new Ralph Miliband book is what we'll do. Hey. That's actually not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll just reread the one that we've already read. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. What have we learned? <laughs> um... Well, Dan, I think it is high time that we go back to the actual Marxist stuff. We go back to the go back to our roots, which you're not really actually like Marx, but like uh, we go back to actually not conspiracy theories, not just watching movies, not phoning it in. Let's read something. Uh, I don't know. That's a, has a big red cover. <laughs> <laughs> Does have a big red cover? A kind of burgundy cover. Yeah, it's a good looking book. Um, um, yeah, and it and it's got some overlap with conspiracies. There interested some, to hear was, this <laughs> well no in the sense of uh, oh yeah, yeah sure yeah like the conspiracy of equals yes quite that. quite yeah, quite all right. or the uh the various blonkiest conspiracies yes which 
uh, I forget which episode it was that we pissed off the Blanquiest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But we're going to do that again this week. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, dear listener. Uh-huh. Well, come back, that one Blanquiest <laughs> listener that we had. <laughs> Leaving us a mean comments. Yeah. <laughs> the spirit of Blanqui lives on. Um, a couple like, weeks ago. I want to bow like, we did, like, um, on the on the various social media platforms that I look after, we don't get very much listener engagement. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. It would be very funny if you only got one guy and it was a blankiest. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I we did re- very recently get a um, the very classic comment, which is like, mm. um, basically just like the socialism failed everywhere. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Everywhere it was dried, it failed. <laughs> Uh, Which I was glad of. I was glad of. Yeah. I was glad of. You're kind of like, have you listened to our show? We know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, bless you, that person. Hey, I didn't bless. reply. Mm. I was I was uh, trying to work out quite a very kind, generous reply, <laughs> which was like effectively it. yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the the page Dan was referencing was our LinkedIn page for the, for the show. Hey, um, man, we get all of our engagement on our LinkedIn page. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Chapo Trap House wants to connect. <laughs> yeah, go, oh, I'm avoiding those guys. <laughs> um, well, Dan, a couple yeah. of weeks ago. <laughs> all this stuff. All this fun of this goddamn fab about. A <laughs> couple of weeks ago, uh, faithful listener Dan and I went to a bookstore. And in this bookstore, we found this book. And in this book, um, we found... You know, a lot of words, and we were like, all right, maybe... Well, we can't read them all. We can't read all of these words. So, I don't know. I flicked to what is chapter seven. So, I suppose we should say the book is Shlomo Avenaris, which is, I think, the best name of a author we've had so far. Other than maybe Alan Mason's one. Uh, the Social and Political Thought of Karl Marx. Uh, this was written... I should probably have looked up when this was written. It was, I don't know. It was written a while ago. Um, <laughs> but Judging by the, uh, the book cover... <laughs> I'm going to say, well, yeah, late 70s. Um, 1968. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, ostensibly what this book, I guess, is trying to do is argue that there is, kind of just talk a little bit, I guess, about Marx's intellectual development and to kind of, like, I suppose, open questions about, like, what is actually the difference between young Marx and old Marx or whatever, humanist Marx and, like, quote-unquote economic determinist Marx. But the chapter that we're reading has the title that rolls off the tongue, The French Revolution and the Terror, the Achievements and Limits of Political Revolution. Um, I really liked it. The first the first time I read it, I think I was a little freaked out because I was like, what is the point of anything? <laughs> like, what are we even doing here? Um, and then the next time I read it, I kind of had a lot more questions and I kind of I was like, all right, you know, come back to Earth. Don't freak out as much. Um, and I think that's where I'm at now. I kind of have a lot of questions about, like, I'm not entirely certain what this is actually about. Um, I think you can kind of break it up into a couple different parts where there are definitely a couple different theses being made. But suffice it to say, it's all about what can political revolution actually do. And it uses a lot of Marx's writings on the French Revolution to talk about that and the legacy of the Jacobins and all of that. Um, before we get into it, uh, what do you think? Just right off the top. I thought it was very good. Hmm. But it was very, very good. I mean, I just wanted to say in terms of this book, like, I think we picked out a chapter which stands well on its own. Mm. And um, as we've already said, we're making our return to podcasting and <laughs> um, and uh, baby steps. <laughs> <laughs> 
So 20 we, pages. We're on, 20 brand, pages. on brand for our short readings. <laughs> and there are moments in this one I was like, I really wish I'd just read this entire book. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, that said, it stood alone quite well. Um, and yeah, I thought it was very excellent. I thought it um, chimed very well with many of our recent readings. It chimed quite well with the Ellen Meeks's Wood readings. Mm. Um, it chimed quite well with our discussion with Cliff Connolly. It chimes very well with our two readings from Hal Draper. Um, so yeah, as a, as a development in our thinking, it fits in very nicely. <laughs> Um, I know that you have quite an interest in the French Revolution, and so mm. also it's quite a nice compliment to to that. At least, at least I hope. I, I suppose I should let you speak to that <laughs> rather than let yeah. You no, I guess it is. I mean, I think the thing that I took away most, at least directly, um, that directly relates to the French Revolution in this, because this does speak to like a much bigger question, which is what is the point of political revolution and what what can we do with it. What can it even accomplish when, like, material conditions aren't perfect? Because they've got it perfect, you know, for anything to happen. Um, I was really interested in this idea of, like, how Marx views the French Revolution because, like, you hear a lot of, like, and this has definitely come back, I think, with, like, all-time podcast referencing another podcast on the show, but, like, Mike Duncan's Revolutions, right? Where the thesis is kind of, like, there were these different revolutions that all took place, right? There was, like, 1789, which was, like, the bougie revolution. And then there was, like, you know, Robespierre came along. That was, like, a different revolution. And then there was, like, Gracchus Babouf, whoa, and that was crazy. And then we had the directory, and then finally we got Napoleon, blah, 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 blah. Um, and when you have that reading, I think you you lose you lose something. It, it First of all, I think it kind of stops making history feel like a coherent story. And it is, like, a series of short stories as opposed to, like, one long one long thing. And I really appreciated Shlomo um, bringing out Marx's distinction of like, hey guys, you don't just write off 1789, like the original French Revolution, as like purely political. Like it wasn't just this bourgeois revolution. Like, well, it was a bourgeois revolution, but like it also had social consequences. Um, I, yeah, I really appreciated that. I mean, I think it is if you were to maybe not be super familiar with Marx, you might not expect him to have that reading. Is like, wow, look at these social consequences of 1789. Um, but I think it's hugely important to have, and I think that sets up pretty much his entire argument here. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the impression that I got, I've gotten, or the impression that I have coming from what you've just said, is that um, he seems to be making the case that the French Revolution, French Revolution was very much emergent from the social conditions, right? Mm, sure. Um, it was an expression of the develop developments in civil society, or at least the emergence of an independent civil society in and of itself. Um, and I guess also the 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 to extend that a little bit, the relationship between the new civil society as it stood separate from the political institutions of feudalism and then also the connection between that new civil society and it's the new classes and the new class organizations and also the new uh, philosophical and intellectual schools of thought that they were developing uh, in that milieu i suppose um what the connection is between all of those new emergent phenomena and their relationship to the emergence of capitalism, I suppose, as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm just going to read 
please. What I, I think it was like one of my favorite bits. This is pretty early on. And this is basically just when Shlomo here is talking about the French Revolution. He says, subjectively, it was nothing but an expression of the will of the bourgeoisie to shape the political world according to the principles of civil society. And these goals were finally vindicated, according to Marx, under the directory and finally by Napoleon. But objectively, the social order promoted by the bourgeoisie also implies universal criteria bound up in the long run to undermine the social order itself. So basically, what he goes on to say is that, like, French Revolution was this big idea of, like, you know, everybody can finally be what they want. Because obviously under feudalism, it was like, oh, you weren't born in the right family. You're literally never going to be, like, as cool as me, baby. I'm the Duke or whatever. But, like, with the French Revolution, it abolished all of that. It abolished, you know, feudal uh, property rights and all of this stuff. And it basically had the premise that, like, everybody can now be a bourgeois. Everybody can be bourgeois. Everybody can, you know, own their little shop and, you know... Uh, and uh, everybody can do it. You can be your own man or whatever. Um, but Marx is basically like, that's so obviously not true. Like, just because everybody can become bourgeois doesn't mean that everybody will become bourgeois. Because in able to have a bourgeois, like, class strata of society, you need to have, like, workers. And you need to have people who will just never get that or just aren't that at any given moment. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, obviously that's, like, the beauty of a lot of Marx's thought is that, like, he doesn't just stop there. Like, a lot of, like, if you're just maybe, like, a philosopher or a sociologist or something like that will like he develops this under like capital right and like the actual like reasons and the laws of this economic society but um that again just sets up this whole idea of like it's kind of a fake universality in in this bourgeois revolution and one that needs to be fully vindicated with communism one that is like you know you don't this is actual universality because right now it's fake universality and because it's fake universality that's going to eventually lead to its downfall which is important, I guess. Yeah, I really appreciated that distinction between the the subjective and the objective conditions, mm. and the corresponding um, idea of the there being universal and particular characteristics of this phenomena. Um, and if I knew better, I might say, <laughs> "Welcome to the <laughs> this show." This sort of it's representative of. Um, Marx's dialectical thinking when it comes sure. to these questions, right? Mm. Um, and so, so obviously there are um, subjective desires and demands that are uh, that have their realization in the the sort of political turmoil that is the French Revolution. Mm. Um, but as you say, the the sort of like the ideological conditions that underpin it are in conduct in so, so, so therefore this sort of like the the objective and the universal characteristics of this revolution are in direct sort of like almost dialectical contradiction to the subjective and the particular characteristics of the revolution um and it's one of those instances where uh, marx is suggesting that um the foundation of this society is predicated from the outset upon a contradiction mm. um and that contradiction might well serve to undermine that society but that society, that contradiction can only be overcome by overcoming the 
the society that created it kind of thing. Mm. So basically, Mark, what, Mark, what Marx is saying is that um, it, it's only through communism that you can realise the the universal characteristics of the bourgeois revolution, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I've always, I've always been a bit uncomfortable with this argument which is made that's like actually at base Marx is just a proponent of kind of like yeah. liberal modernity kind of yeah. thing or what have you um, and I suppose what's maybe made me uncomfortable with that idea is it kind of like uh, defangs Marx to some extent Yeah, if it is to just put him on uh, put him into the pantheon of liberal thinkers mm then it certainly undermines the radicalness of his thought. But there is, as I've learned from this, like an alternate reading of that, which is that like Marx is the only one that says that to actually have these um, universal rights of human beings, um, editorializing slightly the, <laughs> the language that would have been used at the time, but like if you want to have the universal rights of the human being, you cannot have capitalism. Yeah. Um, and in making that statement, in making that assertion, Marx is alone, I suppose, in that in that uh, pantheon of thinkers who draws their inspiration from the sort of like universal characteristics of the French Revolution. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was think I was worried too that that's what Shlomo was going to be doing with this book. Um, which is just like de taking all of the revolutionary ideas out of Marx, um, but I think I think you're definitely right. And I think one thing that threw me off is because we've quoted you know the like classic Engels line before where he's like, "You want to see communism? Look at the Paris Commune." And then there's like a bit in this where Marx is like, "The Paris Commune literally was not socialist." And I was just like, "What? What? Wait a minute!" But I mean, I I think that transitions transitions just nicely into like the idea of terror. Right? Yeah. Because Marx makes the point here that, like, if a revolution can be carried out, it can be carried out without terror, which I, I think there's a little bit more nuance that needs to go into that. That seems like a very abrupt, like, if, when the conditions are perfect, it will happen in, in no time before. You know, that's not what happened with capitalism. I would expect that's not what's going to happen with socialism. But I think that is just a question of scale. But I think it really is important to, like, pause for a moment and, like, really think about the role of terror in any kind of revolution or any kind of social change. Because like when we're using the Jacobins as a guide, like a hundred percent, that's correct. It's like, you don't need to kill hundreds of thousands of people in the, like if you, well, I should rephrase that. If you are killing hundreds of thousands of people in the Vade and in Western France to do the bourgeois revolution, something's wrong. <laughs> like something's not right. Like the conditions there aren't correct. Um, that opens you up to like a huge question of like, what what is the purpose of politics and like political revolution because it's like you know i don't know obviously i'm not making an argument for terror but it's like how long do you have to wait until the circumstances are correct because certainly i think it's the case that the material circumstances obviously were different in paris than they were in like you know some place in western france right but because you're operating on this national scale it's like I don't know, how do you politically work around that? How can you have a revolution without terror? Is it just evil to wait until the perfect circumstances? Is that even possible? Will something else happen? Um, I think that all kind of gets kind of answered, but it's definitely something worth pausing on, I think, and 
It, it took it kind of tripped me up when I first read it, I guess. Sure. Um, I don't know a great deal about the events of the French Revolution, so maybe you'll have to educate me. <laughs> but... Or maybe we'll have to educate one another in another podcast. I don't know. Um... So I don't really know how the where the Jacobins stood in in relation to the broader revolutionary movement. I suppose. Um, so I suppose that's my general question too. But I'm going to keep talking in case that you choose not to give an answer <laughs> to that. Which would be to say that maybe what what it's worth doing is um, saying that what what we're dealing with here is quite an expanded version of the concept of terror mm. so obviously we're talking sure. about the terror in terms of like i don't know the period of the french revolution where the hardcore band from la sure <laughs> <laughs> where where the guillotine was in most use i suppose yeah. although actually, i don't know whether that's true right like it was the it was the yeah. it was the reaction more than the jacobins yeah. that killed the most people during the yeah. French revolution so. yeah. In in Paris, yeah, hundred percent. Okay, okay. I'm getting a bit sort of like I'm getting a bit um, uh, (laughs) caught up in Paris is the only thing that matters and like (laughs) slaughtering all the peasants. Maybe don't care about that kind of thing. Um, But uh, in terms of like terrorism and a sort of more expanded piece of to expel, we could expand the terminology to mean just like political violence, I suppose. Sure, yeah. Um, what Marx is kind of suggesting that the uh, Jacobins were trying to do, coming back to our, I suppose, universal and particular or like um, objective and subjective distinction we were just talking about, um, or rather the the, <laughs> I mean, basically the the argument starts with this idea that what the French Revolution did was separate. Um, politics from civil society Mm. and we've come across some versions of this idea and we were talking off mic a little bit and we maybe jack and i had some some small amount of disagreement as to whether how strongly the comparison can be made between um the idea that we've come across from reading ellen mixon's word about um what capitalism does is separate the political from the economic and um whether one can sort of like map on to this distinction that's being given here, i.e. the distinction between the political and civil society, and compare that to the distinction between the political and the economic. And Mm. I was sort of suggesting that maybe there is quite a lot of similarity between the two, or at least the split that's happened is coming from a very similar place, right? The French Revolution is attempting to assert the rights of the emergent bourgeois capitalist Mm. class, I suppose. Um, And assert the rights of sort of assert universal rights that will allow for the proper operation of the new form of capitalist economy i suppose mm-hmm. um but in terms of terror and the the terror of the french revolution what's what's his surname <laughs> avenieri <laughs> maybe we'll just call him shlomo shlomo avenieri <laughs> uh, what Avignari is suggesting is that what the what um, um, uh, via Marx directly quoting from Marx, what Marx is suggesting um, <laughs> is that the Jacobins were attempting to force upon civil society purely political ideas 
for which there was no actual basis in civil society for. Mm. And th- that, I, 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 basically, the violence that ensued is almost a result of a frustration at the inability of that, that, um, a frustration at the inability of the, of the Jacobins to uh, direct this revolutionary project as a purely political project. And so if there's a broader notion of revolution that's emergent in this, it's the idea that a revolution cannot simply be a purely political project, but um, also has to have its basis in civil society and be emergent from civil society and civil society institutions. Um, And whenever whenever your revolutionary movement doesn't have a basis in civil society and is simply a um, expression of a politics which is held by a small section of that society. Um, that small sort of insurrectionary, terroristic, um, conspiratorial uh, organisation um, is always acting from a position of weakness. And therefore, any terror that ensues is the result of kind of like an impotence rather than a power, a basic mm. sort of like, uh, you know, they're not acting from a position of strength, I suppose. Sure. Um, and so Marx's objection to terrorism is kind of not an ethical one. It's more of like a strategic one, right? Mm. If you're in the position where you have to resort to violence as an effort to um force upon civil society your political views then um strategically and tactically you've failed almost yeah yeah man that's so interesting i mean the implications for this entire essay are like big for obviously for political organizing but like i really i really do think it's interesting of like what would have been a like i don't know i would the question was like what would have been a good course of action in the vade or what would have been a good course of action in western france or something like that right um because if if you're operating along like national lines or something like that and again this was kind of like creating national lines but like there are sections of different nations that are like obviously have different levels of development and i think that raises like a big question of like well, what are you supposed to do there? You know what I mean? Um, but it's interesting because, I mean, like when Marx talks about the Paris Commune, I was really fascinated by this. And this is, again, like a moment where it's kind of like, oh, Marx is like doing what a lot of commies don't do, which is kind of just putting on his big boy pants because he's just like, what they should have done is just reached like an amicable agreement with the effing government in Versailles and just like, you know, compromise, made a compromise that would have been like way better for the majority of people in France. I was really surprised at that. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. If he was like, you know, if the only thing that the Paris Commune accomplished was, like, getting rid of the National Bank of France or whatever, that would have been huge. That would have been insane, you know what I mean? Um, so I was I was surprised by that, I think, because it's like, obviously, when we think about revolution, we imagine it just like, boom, it happens, and anybody who disagrees, get rid of them, they're out, we're ushering in a new era. But it's like, okay, if you actually want to look at, like, the material circumstances... How long would the Paris Commune have been able to hold out, even if it defeated, like, Thiers' government in Versailles? Like, probably not very long. Um, what would the better thing be to do? Well, it would probably be to do this. And you might piss off some, like, ultra-leftists or whatever, but, like, eh, 
you know, it might just be the better move. I was really um, heartened by that, I guess. But at the same time, I mean, it just leads you to be like, God, how much longer do I have to wait? You know what I mean? Obviously, maybe it's just like the like angsty teenager in me, but it's like, I want to have that quick revolution. I want to have it just be done, but it's like, you know, if you got to liquidate like all of the kulaks, maybe that's not a good idea. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, that that section at the end of this chapter was really surprising to me as well because mm-hmm. the, you always think of like Marx being someone who celebrates the Paris Commune kind of thing. Like it's the first emergence of like the proletarians as taking their uh, place in the on the stage of history. Yeah. Um, he, he, so, to, so to hear that he's like warning against even before it happens, he's like, no, this is a terrible idea, and even afterwards, he's like. <laughs> This, I mean, this was never going to end well. Yeah. Um, so he's willing to celebrate certain aspects of it. Um, I mean, his take is the majority of the commune was in no way socialist, nor could it be. It's like, there's a lot of angles. He kind of confused me. <laughs> but it does, I mean, it's another, it, it does feel like Marx is like constantly on a downer and is trying to bring everybody down, you know? It's like, yeah, this is cool, but like, you know, like, yeah. Like it's it's the it was, I mean it's that quote of like you're gonna have to take twenty thirty fifty oh, years to yeah. like reform yourselves. No, that kind of sucks. <laughs> I know it would have been way cooler. We can say to have been a Blanquist. Cooler, definitely way cooler. <laughs> Correct? <laughs> eh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I mean there's a lot of this which chimes very much with the the reading that we did about the um, uh, the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? And how Marx is constantly pitching himself against um, Blanquism and to some extent like Jacobinism um, and is firmly on the side of um, a gradual development, a building of political consciousness and um, uh, basically class independent institutions of the working class right like if 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 um if marx's critique of the french revolution and the efforts to force radical outcomes particularly like communistic outcomes from the french revolution his critique is to say that like there was no force within civil society that was willing to to both represent and be in a position to build the new post-capitalist society Mm. and we have to build inside of capitalism the civil society institutions that are capable of doing that and all of the all of our political work ought to be toward um, developing those forces and it oughtn't be in adventurist yeah uh, um, efforts at purely political revolutions kind of thing Mm. rather than what Marx would advocate for, which is a fully social revolution. Yeah. Um, And he basically suggests that all political, all purely political revolutions, i.e. all revolutions that seek to force a politics upon a civil society are doomed to fail. Mm -mm. Um, And whatever you try to abolish will always uh, reemerge. And could just alienate people. Quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially like a Blanquist thing. It's just like, you guys yeah, suck. Yeah, yeah. It's big government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it does, it certainly puts in perspective. I mean, again, um, what we are experiencing here are the foundations for Marx's advocacy for socialism from a 
below rather than above, right? Yeah. You could probably use this essay to rephrase the idea of socialism from below to mean socialism from civil society mm-hmm. that was emergent from civil society rather than socialism, which is forced from a uh, sort of like purely political position kind mm. of thing. Like the your, your um, I don't know, your... Saint Simons, mm. your um, Fabians, your Fabians, what have you, <laughs> are all like speaking from a position of having worked out a politics, mm. and then intend through what's always going to end up as dictatorial means, yeah, in forcing um, their politics upon an unwilling civil society, mm. um, and Marx's for either ethical or tactical reasons, unwilling to yeah. um, admit that that's ever going to work kind of thing. Yeah, or, it's almost worse than that. Like when you think about Fabians and stuff, because it, like their idea is that every, here's what our, here's the plan we figured out and everybody will love it. It's like, no, <laughs> it's like, what? Don't be an idiot. Not everybody's going to love it. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but you're right. You're right. He, he definitely does like kind of smack down the, the Blancius and all of that. But but it was, I was also kind of interested in the way that this kind of speaks without saying the words like to like the ultra left and like like some lefty lefties, um, of which we've all been guilty with flirting with. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I loved this bit too. Marx may have understated the case when he referred to the League of Communists as a propaganda association, but basically this implication is invalid. Marx saw the uniqueness of the League and its attempts to form the organizational and cognitive basis that will bring in its wake the change in the political and social structure. And then it gives just the absolutely kick-ass sentence. Um, On May 3rd, 1870, the General Council again dissociates itself from the conspiratorial tendencies and declares that the proletariat never really needs a conspiracy because its conspiracy is always public. That kicks ass. Mm -hmm. And I think think that last bit kind of ties it up because I remember a while ago when we, it must have been when we did the Council Communist readings, we kind of had this discussion about like, well, what are you supposed to do? Just be a propaganda association? Like, well, what's the point? You know what I mean? But it's interesting here because Marx says that you need not just that cognitive basis, which is hugely important, but you also need to develop like organizations that actually will be an effort to looking at what a future society could look like and building class consciousness and all of that. But that last bit I think is really important. Like the conspiracy is always public. Like, you need to be clear about what your aims are all of the time, right? Like you can never, like you never want to be sneaky about it. You never want to be like, and then we'll admit that it's actually just socialism once everybody gets on board. Like you need to say like, here's what we're doing. We're, you know, against the current way of things. We're against the current state. We're against the current social structure. We're building towards something completely different and it's something much better and just never back down from that. Because like, if you do kind of try to be sneaky about it and be like, eh, it's socialism, but like, huh, nice socialism. Don't worry. It's like the scary socialist word, but don't worry about it. Like, I don't know. I think that that's like the key because like, if you just fall back on just trying to build the cognitive basis of people, that is just a propaganda association. And if you just try and do the organizational thing, then you're just kind of doing like a co-ops thing. You know what I mean? And then it's like, well, what's the point? You put those two together and you basically put yourself against everything not only are you setting yourself up for when maybe there is a crisis, you'll have the organizational capability and the like credit to like do something with it. But like, I don't know. It just seems like it makes more sense to me. Yeah, but it's all it's all. I mean, as you as you acknowledge and admit, like it's all it's all long term strategies. Yeah, it? yeah, that's the thing. Um, 
And it's so easy. I mean, I think we all fall for it from time to time of being like, if we triangulate a little bit, <laughs> if we use one word over another, yeah, yeah, if yeah. we get a little bit pally-pally with <laughs> like some, some, some social democrats, some libs kind of thing, <laughs> like if we try and emphasize the similarities rather than the differences, um, will it get us short, further in the short term? And it may well get shorter, shorter further in the short term. <laughs> Uh, but what's, in the long, what yeah, what's the point? In the long term, yeah. like, like it, it, as a long term strategy, it's about um, building trust and building respect. Mm. But um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I I wonder too to like what extent it actually is a long term strategy because it is like it is a long term strategy, but also like. I was interested in the bits here where they talk about Marx, like, I suppose a little bit he's kind of talking about the French Revolution, but when he says we need to be ready if there is a bourgeois revolution to kind of just be the adults in the room and kind of be like, okay, here's what actually makes sense. I feel like also, like, my experience whenever you're, like, in a room of, like, broad leftists, it's like people who are communists are kind of always the adults in the room. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they are always the people who are, like, have a worked out plan at least if, you know, they're the communists I like. And, like, it all makes sense, and it's not just to, like, let's throw some bricks at some windows, or just to, like, well, what about if, you know, we uh, uh, shake hands with AOC or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, so I don't know. It, it Like, it is a long-term strategy, but it's also, like, who knows? Like, and I think Mark says that. It's, like, who knows when this is going to happen? It, yeah, it would really suck. Like, all of, obviously, all of his, like, time frame seemed to be a little bit shorter than you know where we're at right now but like who knows when this change could happen who knows when there's a crisis that you could hopefully take advantage of you know who knows when like the circumstances will be right quote unquote right you know so i don't know yeah i i, I guess now's a good time to bring up but we've already alluded to it to some extent um the sort of concern that perhaps i think we both had reading this which was sort of like if you are waiting for conditions to be ripe, mm. there is almost a reading of this which would say that, like, you almost, they're almost like a quietest argument, like, you basically never take action, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the conditions are never actually quite there, kind of thing. You can also, you, one is always, I guess one is always at risk of acting prematurely. Mm. And I suppose if one doesn't risk premature action, one is liable to never take action at all. Yeah. Um, so for a while in the, in the middle sections of this chapter I was becoming a bit concerned I was a bit like um, if it's a matter of waiting for um, objective conditions to develop it's almost like something that you step away from and sort of wait in the wings kind of thing mm. and that's why it was so refreshing at the end of this is so much of a sort of like an interventionist uh, strategy I suppose it is a strategy of patience mm. in air quotes it is a um, yeah strategy of sort of building uh, building strength building class independent institutions over time um, and building the respect and trust of the working class um, what was interesting to me when you just brought up the idea of like left communism and when I was thinking about these two distinctions, I suppose, these two readings of um, this notion of d 
developing um, conditions for uh, revolution being uh, right, I suppose. There is an extent to which the left communists are actually the ones that are in favour of uh, waiting. Mm. They're the ones in favour of yeah, true, yeah. not acting. Um so there's almost like a radical left, which is like the <laughs> the the sort of like the the almost the, the terroristic or the 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 uh, advocate advocates of a political revolution, I suppose. And then there's also the left, which is um, unwilling to take action at all because it's all about waiting for the objective conditions to come about waiting for capitalism to automate to develop the consciousness of the working class without actually taking action to um to influence that consciousness mm. to to build that consciousness consciousness because if one if one were to just say that um the conditions for a transition to communism are, are going to come out come about because of purely objective and yeah. naturally unfolding conditions that are emergent from the life of capitalism um how how can one look at our present conditions now and yeah. have anything but despair you yeah know? 100% like because yeah. because there is the kind of like um Marx thought that for various reasons capitalism would develop in such a way that it brought about a class who was able to overthrow it kind of thing. It would be emergent from the contradictions of capitalism, as we've already heard, uh, that um, the conditions of communism will come about and um, the civil society organisations that are going to make that social revolution possible will be emergent from the life world of capitalism itself kind of thing. Um now, you have to have some kind of explanation as to how capitalism has developed over the past 100 years or so that have made that kind of narrative um, perhaps less compelling than it was in the 1850s. Mm. Um, but if one is willing to surrender all agency to purely objective developing conditions and give no agency to the actual work of building a revolutionary movement then i mean i guess all hope is lost yeah um so i don't know yeah <laughs> but yeah so it, so um certainly marx was writing under conditions that are massively different to our own and one could read the text quoted in this chapter and be like um how does any of this speak to our present conditions kind of thing mm. but what does kind of what is refreshing is that um Marx's strategy is a fully interventionist one and also um, a long-term and patient one and one which is not rash to act, one which is not... Uh, I mean, in Marx's context, um, what Avineri is describing as one of Marx's like primary propagandistic tactics of the latter portion of his life is to... like prepare the working class movement to be able to act independently of other classes and particularly to ward off the possibility that um, some kind of like petty bourgeois revolution might happen and the working class will glom onto that rather than like directing it themselves you know mm. um, and I don't know what the direct parallel to that is now but um, mm. 
but that 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 was Marx's focus when it came to political strategy, um, is very refreshing and sort of gives us some hopeful. Yeah, our present condition, I suppose. Well, it's like it, I don't know. It's kind of like this is, I think, one of the biggest unanswered questions of socialism, right? It's you're kind of damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. If you have a blankiest, you know, uprising, and you're successful, and you quote unquote successful, and you take power, maybe yeah, Marx's point is that you're going to screw up. It's not going to work. Nothing's you know, nothing's proper. Nothing's the way it should be. But I mean, I don't. I think, I think to kind of fully come to terms with this question, I think. You know, you talk a lot about like how how Marx's times were very much differently different from our own. I think we would kind of have to do a little bit of reading. I think just on imperialism in a certain way, because like obviously we've talked a little bit about uneven development, but it's like how much more correct do the material circumstances have to be if you're like a cobalt miner in you know in the Congo? You know what I mean? Like, and that's one of the like horribly depressing things. It's like. The, no, sorry, the conditions have to be correct in the United States, and they have to be correct in China, and they have to be correct in Europe, you know what I mean? Um, so I think, I think I'd like to kind of, to answer this question, I think, yeah, I think we would have to read a little bit more about uneven development and how that plays into, like, actual material circumstances. And, but I mean, like, that would play into, like, socialism in one country versus, like, on what level do you need to be operating politically? We need to read Kautsky, we need to read Rosa Luxemburg, we need to read all this stuff, but... Um, I don't know. I think that's one of the biggest questions I had going through this was like, where are we talking about when we talk about material circumstances? You know what I mean? Like, are we talking about like in metropole countries? Are we talking about like, you know, are we going to be Maoists? Um, am I going back to my roots and be a Maoist where, you know, we talk, you know, third worldism? Like, I don't know. I think that that's a huge part of this that obviously didn't get talked about at all in this because this was very like broad. But um, yeah, I think a part that's worth mentioning, I guess. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't really have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I'm always liable to um, think about only the conditions that I experience. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. portion of the world that I live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're so right to like, mm-hmm. to say that like there are, there are uh, working class movements in various different parts of the world that are operating under wildly different conditions. Some of them are far more reminiscent um at least of the 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 composition of the class mm. are perhaps more reminiscent of like um industrial revolution era western europe than they are sure, to yeah. like contemporary western europe yeah um so yeah yeah well so i mean true. it's it, like it is i don't know it's a question of imperialism and it's a question of like nationalism but it's also like okay say we were just talking about here we were just talking about the uk there are radically different levels of development just here so it's like this is a political question in terms of organizing it's like okay if we're if we take that you should operate like have internationalist values of course as you have to as a communist but like you know a class consciousness but also like you are operating within this framework of national politics it's like where does that start where does that begin because like we saw with the jacobins like if you try and apply the same framework everywhere, that's going to fail, right? So, oh, yeah, a lot of questions. <laughs> mm. um, I was kind of thinking, too, I don't really have many developed thoughts on this, but it did just kind of hit me as you were talking, thinking about this as an organizational question of, like, say you have this long-term strategy of, like, waiting for a crisis. You wouldn't want to let a crisis go without, like, actually doing anything, right? But then it's like, 
the fear of like if you were to fail and all of your work were to come to nothing and everything were to fall apart, right? Like how could you organize in such a way that your failure failures are like taken on board, if that makes any sense? Like if you understand what I'm saying, like it, like you want to have this long-term strategy, but you also want to be able to take advantage of any opportunity that comes your way. But you don't want these opportunities if they should turn out to be failures or whatever, to just screw the entire movement back for another century. You know what I mean? Um, so how can we like like intelligently organize in such a way that our political organizations are not only like adaptable to different like levels of development regionally, but also like ones that are able to like take failures on board, if that makes sense. Is that possible? I don't know. I feel like ever since we read Cybernetic Revolutionaries, I keep coming back to like, this is an organizational question, but it might not be, but like, isn't it? <laughs> My intuitive uh, answer, I guess, is to say that um, it doesn't necessarily need to be that there are two streams of political action, right? Mm -hmm. There's the kind of like gradual patience and then there is the the taking radical action kind sure. of thing. Like, I feel like the strategies of... Um, patience i suppose which are in effect like um building organization and building consciousness like the way you respond to crises can also result in building organization and building consciousness mm. and you can enter into some kind of any 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 i guess any politically advantageous it's the um event um or I mean, any political event, I suppose, even if it's like a uh, an election or mm. a series of strikes or something like that, um, you if you always enter into them with the view to, um, I guess, building organization, building consciousness, building trust, and being seen to take action which advantage advantage members of the working class, even if it's advantaging them in their life under capitalism sure um i almost feel like if you do all of that work um those organizations will almost will seize the initiative for you almost mm. like if you maybe i don't know maybe that's a naive a naive idea i don't know but like um the concept of building like a class independent political movement that class independent political movement would seize opportunities, I think, of its own accord almost. Sure. Like it wouldn't be the matter of like it wouldn't be a matter of like taking a gamble, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um like I, I guess like I guess we I mean I, there there were instances in this reading this essay when I found myself thinking about um nineteen seventeen quite a lot. Mm. Uh particularly as I was just trying to work out kind of like what kind of revolution was it? Yeah. under these conditions like was it a political one was it a social one and therefore like um as it did indeed fail was it by virtue of its failure um a purely political revolution or were social conditions ripe for social revolution but then it failed because of other means i.e., like yeah. whatever like the civil war or what have you but I suppose coming back to the argument I was just trying to make, like there is an extent that you, I suppose you could read 1917 as being like um, the sort of political mandarins of the Bolshevik party, like <laughs> directed the class. Mm. But mostly what happened was like the 
the, Bols- the 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 various revolutionary forces were all chasing to keep up with yeah. the developing activities and consciousnesses of the class kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's an, there's an extent to which like the the class independent forces that had been built through long term work of social democrats in Russia resulted in an unfolding situation which. Um, in which I suppose those organisations charted their own course, took their own decisions. Mm. I might be grossly misrepresenting the the Russian Revolution here, so <laughs> I don't know. So may, yeah. maybe maybe we leave it as an open a historical question: Was it the case that it was directed, hmm. or was it the case that <laughs> that's a good tactic? Whether or, or whether yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, or 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 was the hand of the the political actors of the working class movement were there and forced by mm. this the, the actions of Russian civil society. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic point. I mean, I think every time I think about history at all, I'm constantly reminded that, like, you need a huge amount of nuance when you're talking about history, right? Because it's like, when we ask that question, we could also ask, like, was the party trying to keep up with the class in St. Petersburg in October of 1917, you know what I mean? Um, Obviously, like, there were class uprisings and class uh, struggle all over Tsarist Russia. Um, But it's also the case that, like, you know, come Stalin's time, like, Ukraine was at a very different level of development. Um, So I don't know. I think that's how I get around talking about history at all. Um, I think also when you said, is it it naive or not to to kind of think that... um, uh, this is the way that organizations will act. It's almost like not really even the question because like you made a really good point when it's like the party isn't doing nothing during these times of these down times, you know what I mean? Like it should be actively working towards bettering the lives of people um, because that's ethically cool. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about these things, we kind of just go ethically kind of who cares? This is what needs to happen and this is what's right. And it is also ethical. Hey, that's cool. That's awesome. But um Ethically, because that's the good thing to do, but also because it'll bring more people onto your side and because that will raise class consciousness as well. Um, so, I don't know. Mar- the marks that we get from this reading, as frustrating and as depressing as it can be, that like maybe we do have to have this long-term strategy and wait a little bit out. Um, it, again, it isn't like nothing's happening. You know, things things are moving. Things are always moving, I guess. That's maybe what we need to be reminded of when we read this piece is that... There is always class struggle. Things are always moving. Look at us all the way back to the Miliband in episode one. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Um, class struggle is ever present. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, if you if you come across any anarchists who say, well, what are you going to do? Just do nothing. Remind them about that. There is always class struggle. Things are always happening and there's always something you can do to make people's, I don't know, lives better or whatever and uh, engage with them on this level and further the class struggle. Um, yeah. I, I think I feel, now that we've talked about it a bit, I think I feel a lot better about this essay. Um, I think it was structured in a weird way. Because at the beginning, like the first third, the first two thirds, you're kind of like, he is just kind of trying to make Marxist like a sock down. Like he is just kind of trying to like take all this revolutionary attitude out. But you kind of see, once they start talking about the commune, kind of what they're talking about. But I did love what, <laughs> I fully agree that we need to get rid of the uh, the Jacobin legacy from leftism. Because it is still so present. It is still so present. Um Another reason that I, to put Jackman Magazine on the shit list is that they called themselves Jackman Magazine. 
Yeah, it's funny that I read that. I really enjoyed that. That's the last sentence of the essay, and I really enjoyed mm. it. Um, but it's only when you say that 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 I realise that it is the case that I mean, Blanchism might be not an ever-present force, but mm. um, Jacobinism certainly is, or at least like the idea that um, what we're engaging is a purely political process, mm. or rather that one can force change purely by political means is always an ever-present temptation. Mm. And it's it's that impulse that we need to purge from <laughs> yeah. our thinking and our consciousness and um, and uh, avoid in our political action and our movement mm. kind of thing. And also, again, just not take it fully the other way too, which is do nothing. Because like, that is very much not what's being argued here. Um I think Shlomo, I've come away from him. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. This is pretty good. I enjoyed it. It's definitely made me think, Dan, a lot more than, um, I don't know, the JFK book. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah. that. We were, you were doing something with that book, but I think it was yeah. thinking. <laughs> That's just ever present. That's just a hum in, my, in, the, in the background of my mind. Here's what you can be doing in between periods of crisis. <laughs> Reminding people that we know who killed JFK. Uh, I, oh, yeah. yeah, interesting though. That is terror, isn't it? That is resorting to political terror yeah, yeah, to yeah. Uh, further uh, your shitty bourgeois goals. So interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting read of that. I don't know what to make of it, but the Dulleses or Alan Dulles definitely had to resort to political terror the world over and domestically to maintain the status quo. I suppose. Yeah. Now I was thinking about this. Like, um, I think at one point in this there is a quote where Marx uses the phrase impotence, but. Um, when we were talking about like the um, the counterproductive nature of terrorism, I was just reminded of this sort of like psychoanalytic truism, which <laughs> which I think I probably picked up from Slavoj Žižek, which is not like <laughs> behind every violence there is an impotence, right? Like mm. whenever you resort to a violent act, you're sort of like um, you're admitting your weakness, you're admitting your inability to control circumstances through other means. And I was sort of debating this idea in my head because there is an extent to which, like, um, we live in a violent world. Like, the state is the, per the the institution, I suppose, the entity which gets to use violence legitimately, mm -hmm. and it will use it frequently. Um, so by purely suggesting that um, violence is always representative of an impotence, it... it, it it kind of does some disservice to, um, maybe not disservice, but it, I, that notion sort of flies contrary to the idea that um, we're dealing with institutions that have real material power and they ex they execute or wield that power to our detriment in our everyday lives. Yeah. At the same time, like... Um, we live in such we live in conditions of like relative freedom because there is no threat to the status quo kind of thing and i feel like if 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 it became a political reality that there were some significant threat to um the sort of like economic status quo you would see uh political freedom be massively revoked and you would see conditions that existed 
I suppose in America in the middle of the last century where the government was totally willing to assass- assassinate people yeah. on the regular. <laughs> um, but it's interesting as a, as a, as a, case, as a sort of case of um, violent government action, it's an interesting one because like, I guess there are conditions under which um, the the US government and the other governments of Western Europe resorted to direct, um, uh, I suppose, totalitarian uh, measures. Mm. Um, but they never never became like fully totalitarian regimes kind of mm. thing, uh, which you, one could imagine they might if there was a, an actual threat to their continued existence. I don't know. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I definitely also think of it as just like a newfound power that the state kind of like had forgotten that it had. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, there there are definitely other instances of this kind of thing happening throughout American history and obviously throughout like world history, but at least internationally, so much of like the story of the Dulleses was the story of like a class realizing the power that it has. Being like, wait a minute, I can... You know, Mosadegh in Iran is trying to get rid of my big money-making deal. I can do what? I can just get rid of him and hang on. I can do that domestically too. Um, yeah, that is interesting. Uh, yeah, the in- interesting idea, just like the fluctuations of class power and like um, consciousness of uh, the ruling class as well. That is very interesting. Hmm, something to think about. Mm, yeah, something to think about. Mm. And whether, yeah, whether in resorting to violence it reveals its weakness yeah or at least some kind of crack in the facade of its power mm. oh that just gave me an idea i'll talk with you about after the show <laughs> that did just give me an idea okay, I'm intrigued. oh god <laughs> um yeah all right shlomo very good shlomo yeah, yeah, yeah. avenue yeah um, um we should maybe we, we come back to this, about this? suspicions about this guy yes we have yeah, suspicions we have about suspicions. this guy so, okay so if anybody wants to know <laughs> wants to tell us like like tell us like we are aware that we have suspicions we have suspicions about shlomo nonetheless good book good book good essay good book good essay. and i am i'm i'm compelled to go and read this book in its entirety Mm. as like there's quite an interest the chapter before it is quite a long one and it's generally about um what's it called oh my god i've forgotten The Revolutionary Dialectics of Capitalist Society. Wow. Which has quite a compelling title. I wonder whether we ought to have read that chapter instead. Yeah, I know. I read the last page of that one. Uh, (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) But there was a a really interesting (laughs) idea on that page. Where was it? It was something, was it about... Oh, it was it was about LaSalle. It was really interesting that page that I read of that essay in this book. <laughs> that one page of that book that I yeah, read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I read the book because I read a page. Of the book. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've read that book. Yeah. yeah, it's great. You know what I think is classic is that I bought this book for two ninety nine and this copy is from like the seventies and it's written as being two forty five. The the value of Marx's theory has very slightly gone up. Not even with inflation, like it's probably gone down. That's a bummer. You know, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Shlomo, come on the pod. Uh, you know, what's interesting is I think he's written a lot about Marx's Jewish roots. And I actually kind of like to know more about that because he kind of is one of the main people who refutes the charges of anti-Semitism. Um, interesting. Uh-huh. Stuff. uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh. But again, this, is, this essay is nothing if not a, you know, practice in the idea of like, the ideas are cool, whatever about the person, like, you know, red thread stuff, kind of who cares. But like, hey, great ideas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. 
Cool. Well, we're back at it. We're back at the regular schedule, folks. Um, your regularly scheduled programming. Um, yeah, no idea what we're doing next week, but it'll be good. <laughs> we promise. We promise. Um, all right. Yeah. yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. It's been good. Thanks Look at us much. back in the saddle. All right. Well, as we said, we'll be back next week. We might be back with some more stuff in between. No promises. Um, we make no promises. Yeah, that's the exit statement's <laughs> promise. No promises. All right. Well, uh, yeah, that's good, Jack. Is the next your statements. Take us out. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. It's a very great pleasure to be back with you. We'll see you again next week. <laughs> the music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa.